You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Andreas Werner. He's part of the Institute for Cell and Molecular Bio Biosciences at uh, Newcastle University over in the UK. So, uh, Andreas, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Richard. Um, thanks for having me uh, and uh, giving me the opportunity to um, talk about my research, my science. Yeah. Well, I see it's related to the genome. So, uh, you know, can you give a brief description of what research you're working on? Oh, yeah. Um, so, very generally, I work on two different topics, and uh, they are not really related. The first one uh, is uh, rare diseases that affect the kidneys, and uh, the second one is genomics, and uh, more specifically, non-coding RNAs and uh, evolution. And uh, in the context of this conversation, I, I would suggest that we focus on the second one, on the genomics and the non-coding RNAs, if that's all right with you. Yeah, what what are non-coding RNAs as opposed to DNA for the layperson? Right. Um, so let me explain that a little bit in more detail. Um, the extent of non-coding RNA is uh, going back to the Human Genome Project, um, which basically enabled the technology and our uh, that brought about our understanding of these non-coding RNAs. And uh, I think if we talk to a layperson, um, it's pretty much understandable that uh, molecular biology and uh, would uh, basically consist of genes, and then these genes would be uh, transcribed into RNA. Uh, which are kind of blueprints for proteins, and the proteins do the job. And uh, that was pretty much the the perception of how a cell would work, uh, probably up to about the 90s and uh, of uh, last centuries, uh, pretty much a mechanistic perception of a cell. And uh, at that time, the, the Human Genome Project uh, actually uh, was started. And uh, I remember that at that uh, time, I thought, well, this is not really worth the money because uh, there are genes and we know that there are loads of uh, areas that do not encode for a gene or a protein. And I thought it wasn't worth the money. And um, we could all 
already at that time uh, sequenced genes, and uh, we could simply forget about these uh, non-coding areas, this uh, junk DNA or gene deserts. Gladly, um, the the committee they didn't uh, listen to my uh, concerns and uh, went ahead anyhow. <laughs> and uh, and uh, there are uh, two major uh, outcomes that I would like to focus on from from the the Human Genome Project and. Uh, the two features are that there are loads of repetitive uh, sequences um, that we have millions of copies of uh, the same DNA sequence, and uh, these resemble old viruses or old kind of elements that can invade the DNA, and for one reason or the other, uh, we're able to kind of uh, invade our genome and uh, gladly most of these viruses they they uh, became ineffective and uh, inefficient and non-functional, but uh, remain in the genome kind of as, you, as uh, ruins. But now we come to your question about the non-coding RNAs, that much of these non-coding areas are actually transcribed, and uh, many of those give rise to these non-coding RNAs. And uh, that's a second, uh, that's a, a, an additional outcome of, of uh, a spin-off, basically, of the Human Genome Project, that uh, the sequencing technology got so advanced that we are now able to sequence an entire transcriptome uh, within weeks for maybe a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds. So uh, this is really becoming affordable. What do we think the role of the non-coding RNAs are? If they're not coding for anything, what do they do? Well, that's a that's a big debate. Um, initially, when when we realised that there was so much RNA, there were voices that they are regulators of gene expression. Uh, they are important for many many things: for uh, uh, tuning the expression, for degrading uh, RNA transcripts, etc. So they they were thought that many of these RNAs had a, a really important function. And uh, fair enough, if you knock some out uh, within a cell, you may uh, end up in a, uh, generating a phenotype and uh, uh, affecting the, the fitness of the cell. Kind of having thought of these huge numbers of non-coding RNAs and the difficulty of establishing a function for many of those, I kind of tend to take a slightly different approach. So if we look at what these viruses and repetitive sequences um, provide to the genome, it provides vast amounts of information with these truncated uh, proteins, but also regulatory sequences that actually start transcription, drive transcription. And if we look at all these uh, areas of non-coding DNA that are transcribed, we can look at these transcripts as kind of emerging genes, emerging proteins, uh, not necessarily proteins, but um, just, just basically transcripts that are released into the cell nucleus and into an environment. And you can look at that like, like kind of babies that are generated and are um, basically kind of tested and uh, they are released into the cell and most of them uh, they don't. They are not stable enough to survive, or they uh, lack certain features that they don't 
they are not processed uh, like a normal RNA. Where do these non-coding RNAs reside? They're not residing on the DNA itself. They're, they're attempting to what, transcribe parts of the DNA that normally aren't transcribed. Like where, where are they? Where do they sit in the cell? Where are they formed? Well, they are transcribed at a low level. And uh, transcription as such is not um, 100% tight, that it only uh, transcribes uh, genes and then stops. But there might be kind of ripples of transcription around genes. There are areas that maybe just kind of a buildup of uh, transcription machinery that produces a very quick kind of run through an encoding area, but then falls off again. So, so kind of spurs transcription that um, is more kind of uh, serendipitous and, and uh, random than uh, driven by a specific promoter. But the, the important thing is that many of these um, non-coding areas, they contain DNA sequences that drive transcription that are old promoters that were used by viruses originally but the whole rest of the virus is kind of non-functional, but the promoter still kind of flickers here and then and provides a transcript. And if the resulting transcript kind of, for one reason or the other, maybe it clinches to another transcript, it clinches to a protein, kind of makes itself indispensable and starts kind of regulating something or, or inhibiting or enhancing something, then that transcript may may um, acquire a function. And you probably can see how difficult that is if, if some kind of naive RNA enters the cell in the nucleus and then has to basically survive and, and, and define itself as useful to the cell, as a regulator or even a structural component. That's really difficult. So most of these transcripts uh, will be non-coding, short-lived, being degraded, without much of a biological function. But it is necessary to the cells, to, 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 to our organism, to provide this possibility that we can innovate, that we can generate new genes and new transcripts. What kind of cells are you looking at? Are you looking at human cells? And if so, what kind? And you know, how are you figuring out that these things even exist or what their function is? Right. We are looking at human cells, also at mouse cells, but that doesn't really matter. I would consider both mice and human as very complex organisms that, interestingly, share uh, much of the structural and the functional components, the proteins, are very, very similar between mouse and uh, human. What is mostly different are exactly these non-coding areas. So that brings me to another point. Um, these non-coding RNAs, they are very, very dependent on the context. Often you find non-coding RNAs that do something, and research often focuses on diseases, so you look at a non-coding RNA in a liver cancer, for example, you look at the expression level of this non-coding RNA, and a high level of this RNA is very bad for the outcome. The patients with high levels of this non-coding RNA have a low low survival chance. Now you look at the same RNA, the same non-coding RNA, and look at it in a kidney cancer, it's exactly the opposite. Those with a high level of this RNA, they live for a long time, and those with a low level, they die very quickly. So 
the functioning of these non-coding RNAs is exquisitely context-dependent. And therefore, it's often difficult to compare a function of a non-coding RNA in a mouse and compare that to the functioning in a human. So this is this uh, probably indicates that our differences to animals, etc., are mostly down to non-coding RNAs and not to the protein uh, coding genes. Why don't you get some human cells and work on them instead of mouse cells? It's going to be in a. It's not inside the organism. I mean, it's in a dish, right? Or in a microenvironment you create in the lab. So why why not get uh, you know human cells, stem cells, skin cells, something that uh, you know it's really not invasive to get. I think I think we're not quite there yet. So um, the problem is that uh, whenever you look at a specific RNA or a specific kind of, of, of gene cluster, um, a regulatory network, you can focus on one or two or three or five components and. There are, there are hundreds of these. So if you kind of try to recapitulate something from a human cell and a mouse cell, you're probably on a lost, uh, lost case there because you, you, you simply are unable to control all the, diff- all the different factors that would guarantee what you see with your uh, addition of the non-coding RNA. Okay. Well, so is your model a mouse model or what, what kind of model is it? I, I don't understand. So it, let me kind of become a bit more more specific about these non-coding RNAs. If you look at many of these non-coding RNAs, they are particularly highly expressed in testes, which indicates that there might be something going on with respect to changes to evolution, because where evolution happens in testes, and in testes you, you see most of these non-coding RNAs. Uh, difficulties with testes, with sperm cells, you can't basically culture them. So everything that we try to kind of recapitulate with non-coding RNAs might be in a wrong context, and we may uh, deduce wrong conclusions. So I would suggest that if you want, if you are interested in the functioning of a specific non-coding RNA, you investigate that in the specific cancer or in the specific organ that you want to understand its function and you get as close as possible in establishing a model system for that, a cancer cell line that reflects that, let's say a liver cancer, and you stick with that. And then you try to extrapolate the, you extrapolate that to human liver and nowhere else. So it's really it's really a tricky call there. Is the name non-coding RNA is a misnomer? I mean, what function do they have? Have you been able to elucidate anything about them? We know about uh, about a number of functions. They they can basically provide a scaffold for enzymes. So because they are so so compliant, they can actually form a a very versatile uh, scaffold for proteins. And then in addition to that, because they are nucleic acids, they can anchor to RNA to nascent RNA. So by interacting with the nascent transcript, they can deliver a protein component to that active locus, and that protein component can either facilitate or inhibit the transcription. And hence, that non-coding RNA has an influence on gene transcription of that particular target gene. Alternatively, uh, there is a particular family of non-coding RNAs which 
are transcribed in the opposite direction of protein coding genes. And if you want, I can expand on that a little bit because that's a, a very important area of my research, the so-called gamma-sense transcript. So these particular RNA fragments or microRNAs, they're not involved in transcription. They appear to be involved in assisting other elements to be transcribed or expressed or you know, enzymes to participate in reactions. Is that they're kind of helpers instead of active coding elements? transcription yes. elements? Yes. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And that kind of feeds in into my kind of analogy with kids with with developing kind of, of RNAs that have to make themselves useful. So they will easily make an impact if they serve a regulator, they up or down regulate an essential gene. If they manage to do that, they become they become very easily indispensable for a cell if it up or down regulates a, an essential component of that. All right, so go ahead into the other area of research that you're talking about. You know, continue to describe it a bit. Right. Um, so I was I was uh, thinking of looking at these uh, antisense transcripts that are transcribed in in the opposite directions of, of genes. And uh, this is really interesting because, again, these uh, transcripts, they're expressed in testes, and potentially they could hybridize and form double-stranded RNA with the same transcript. And this is a structure that also resembles a virus. So you have this kind of uh, double-edged sword that uh, you have these two transcripts that can have a regulatory function, but also it can be interpreted by the cell as a virus. And uh, this may have huge implications in uh, diseases that these non-coding RNAs can actually trigger disease and by mimicking a viral infection and uh, generating an underlying inflammatory phenotype. So that's another uh, aspect of uh, these non-coding RNAs. So they, how right. close do they look look to uh, you know exogenous viruses? So if you if you infect a plant cell or a C. elegans cell with double-stranded RNA, you will elicit an immune response uh, that is for these for these uh, species and, and organisms an enzyme that chops the virus up into small uh, RNA bits. In human cells, that works differently. If you infect the human uh, cell with a, a virus, proteins that recognize double-stranded RNA viral structures will generate an immune response. And you ask whether they, they resemble each other, and the answer is yes. So you can trigger these responses that are usually directed against the virus by releasing the break on the transcription of these gene deserts, of these repetitive elements that eventually form transcripts that hybridize to each other, form double-stranded RNA, and usually they are kept within the nucleus. But if that kind of protective barrier is overpowered, it will leak into the cytosol and then it gets recognized and um, triggers the same response as a virus. Well, what does a virus look like? I mean, outside the cell, I know it has a protein coat, but once it injects its uh, RNA or DNA into the cell, then does it closely resemble these double-stranded RNAs? 
Yes. Um, basically, every virus in, at certain stages during its life cycle undergoes a phase where there is double-stranded RNA. Now, the cell has, obviously, various possibilities of attacking the virus, but the structure of double-stranded RNA is a structure that the cell recognizes as foreign and attacks it. And the way it attacks it, uh, there are a number of proteins that very specifically can distinguish between DNA and RNA, because if you recall the double helix, the double helix of DNA is slightly different as compared to that of RNA. And it takes specific protein that can uh, kind of recognize the, uh, uh, the size of the groove of that helix. And by distinguishing between the size of the grooves, they can distinguish between double-stranded RNA and, and, and DNA. And it takes a certain length of double-stranded RNA. So if you have short pieces of double-stranded RNA, let's say 20, 30, 40 uh, base pairs, that probably doesn't trigger this response. But if you go longer, which is the size of viruses, long double-stranded RNA greater than maybe 40, 50, uh, and then uh, hundreds and thousands of base pairs, uh, that will be recognized by these proteins. And uh, they they uh, bind to these structures and then uh, that immune response and interfere on mediated immune response is triggered, which eventually leads to, to apoptosis. All right. Um, so what, what, is your, what is the goal of your research? Just to understand the function of the microRNAs to right. create them the, and see the how they cells? I mean, what, what is it? Right. Uh, the goal of, of my research is, is basically is, is kind of um, informed by this, this kind of bias between intrinsic structures that are able to form double-stranded RNA and a viral response. So the fact that the cell intrinsically generates molecules that can kill it, uh, the cell it's kind of the biggest belief. So it's, it's, it's absolutely counterintuitive. Nevertheless, the cell does that. And we want to understand that better because the hypothesis is that under normal circumstances, these double-stranded RNA molecules are maintained in specific compartments in the mitochondria and in the uh, cell nucleus. But we hypothesize that under certain stress conditions, and that stress can be very kind of low, but uh, recurrent. So also, for example, if a cell ages, that we see an increase in double-stranded RNA that leaks out of these confined areas, cell nucleus and mitochondria, into the cytosol, where it triggers uh, weak initially, but then a stronger immune response and generates a phenotype that makes the cell much more susceptible to disease. And there are preliminary results that predict that, for example, in cancer, but also in uh, autoimmune disease or neurodegenerative diseases, you have an underlying phenotype, uh, inflammatory phenotype that uh, we hypothesize is brought about by double-stranded RNA that leaks out of the usually well-contained compartment. And we want to we want to prove that we want to we want to find very specific methods to measure this double-stranded RNA to measure that 
double strand RNA in patients that either have specific cancer or are affected by neurodegenerative diseases. How, how similar morphologically is double-stranded RNA versus DNA? Sounds like a bad name for it. I don't know. How do you know that there's even a difference? If you um, look at the DNA uh, double helix, you have a large group and a small group. So the, the helix basically has two, two groups where the, the protein can access and basically feel the base pair composition within that group. And this works well because the DNA has one relatively wide groove where a protein can access that information. This is not the case in RNA. So the RNA is basically more hidden. Uh, the, the, the base pair composition is more hidden in double-stranded RNA than it is in DNA. And hence, protein cannot kind of feel the base pair composition, the base pair sequence of a specific double-stranded RNA sequence. So double-stranded RNA is much more of a molecule that uh, has kind of biochemical properties and less of a sequence with A, T, Cs, and Gs as the DNA. You can tell the difference experimentally pretty easily between double-stranded RNA and DNA, or is it very subtle? Um, <clears throat> there are antibodies that recognize double-stranded RNA specifically, and they don't interact with DNA at all. So um, it's very easy to, to separate double-stranded RNA and DNA. Yes. And do you understand the mechanism on how double-stranded RNA or even non-coding RNA is generated? And I believe you said it was generated in the mitochondria, or where is it generated? Well, there are, there are two major two major um, uh, compartments in the cell where it is generated. And you named the first one, which is the mitochondria. And uh, that has to do that mitochondria have a very short genome that is transcribed from both directions. And uh, despite the strands not being, um, have the, the same stability, there is lots of double-stranded RNA being formed. With the mitochondria, they have a very uh, efficient protective mechanism to keep double-stranded RNA within the mitochondria, so to, to avoid uh, the double-stranded RNA leaking out into the cytosol. The same uh, applies to the second compartment where double-stranded RNA is being produced, and that's the nucleus. And um, there are experiments when you kind of release the break from transcription and, and enhance with drugs um, spurs transcription you tend to overpower this system and the protective system to contain the double-stranded RNA. And there is a, an increased uh, likelihood that double-stranded RNA leaks into the cytosol where then it triggers, it gets recognized and triggers a interferon gamma response. So you can generate experimental uh, situations where you overpower the intrinsic protective mechanisms and systems that maintain the double-stranded RNA compartmentalized, and then you can measure that this immune response, this innate immune response is being treated. What, um, what would be your ultimate and thrilling goal to achieve in the next couple of years with the research? What, what's really first on the list for you to figure out, and what would be the implication <laughs> if you did? Right. Um, that's a very ambitious question, I think. Um, and uh, 
You see, I'm interested in these anti-Saint Francis that I briefly touched uh, upon uh, in the middle of our conversation. And just because these anti-Saint Francis, they can and do form double-stranded RNA, I'm really puzzled why nature actually invents a regulatory mechanism or a system where it uses these anti-Saint Francis that is so dangerous for the cell itself. Do we understand apoptosis? Because maybe we don't understand it fully, and this is a necessary component of it. No, I don't think. I don't think um, it's it's kind of induced apoptosis. I think it has to do with evolution. That it provides a mechanism, a, a possibility of comparing expression levels of certain transcripts, and eventually it allows. Um, distinction between different types of RNA uh, and eventually allows the detection of mutations or of poorly transcribing, poorly performing transcripts. And I think that's very, very important in the context of evolution to develop such, such a system that a, a complex organism like a, like a, a, a mammal can screen its genome for faulty genes. And I think these antisense transcripts provide a mechanism that allow them to do that at the very basic level. But uh, that's my, my um, kind of hypothesis. And, and uh, I think the ultimate goal of my research would really be to, to, to actually nail that down and uh, confirm my hypothesis. Well, it sounds like uh, it could be a regulatory type thing. You know, you said it's evaluating the expression of uh, multiple elements, and depending upon the conditions in the cell, it forms and maybe intervenes. You know, it doesn't just catalog. Or maybe through the immune response, that's how it's attempting to modulate the expression of various things going on in the cell, and it's an alarm for things going wrong or going in the wrong true, direction. True, I don't know. True. I think, yes, I think you have to take into account that um, the, the organ specificity, not only the... so. So in testes, where you have most of these uh, double-stranded RNAs, um, they may have a completely different role as compared to in a cell, in a, in a, in a somatic cell. And I agree that, that there could be something like an alarm system um, in a somatic cell, but in uh, spermatocytes, that's certainly not the case. Right. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a big puzzle, so I understand why it's, uh, why it's intriguing you. So what's the... What's the best way for listeners to learn more from you and then also from ancillary sources so they can get a handle on what this is? Um, so I'm very happy to be contacted uh, in any way. You can either call a phone or send me an email, visit my web page, um, read my papers. That's absolutely fine. My email address, uh, I can give it uh, here. That's my name, Andreas. And then a dot and Werner at NCL for Newcastle dot AC dot UK. And I'd be more than pleased if uh, I get feedback and uh, people want to learn more about uh, the topic. Are you, are you a lone wolf on this? I mean, how many different scientists appear to be working on um, similar type stuff around the world? Are you, are you able to collaborate with a lot of people or is this... Um, so niche that you're one of the rare ones that works on it. Absolutely, absolutely. I 
collaborate with with a number of people he, here in the UK. I've collaborate I collaborate with people in in Sydney, uh, in Finland, uh, and this is this is really emerging an emerging field. Um, interestingly, the occurrence of double stranded RNA uh, has only emerged maybe a year ago or two years ago. So this is really a kind of a new line of thinking, really, that these molecules can actually have a cellular role and are uh, key players in many processes in evolution, but also in disease. So I think I think it's, or no, I'm convinced it's a, an emerging and a very interesting field. And I'd be more than happy to, to collaborate and discuss uh, at, at uh, various levels, whether that's uh, kind of exchange of ideas, whether that's exchange of, of protocols or absolutely anything is possible. Well, very good. Well, Andreas, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It is a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I hope to get some interesting uh, input and ideas. And uh, yeah, I hope we make some more progress. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.